All right, so if you've got a Bible, go to Mark. So just a reminder, what we said we're going to be doing here is being able to look at Jesus through the gospel of Mark primarily to be able to see what in the world does it look like to be a, a true man of God. And so in order to see what is a true man of God, we're going to look at the Son of God uh, and see how he lived, what he did while he was boots on the ground here on planet Earth. Uh, today, uh, we're going to kind of get a, an assist on the story of Jesus' temptation um, from the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew gives a lot more details. Mark, again, he's kind of fly by the seat of the pants. We're going to give you the highlights, which is good, but uh, we're going to try to stretch out this story and dive into it there. So uh, we'll start in Mark and then we'll jump over to uh, Matthew chapter 4. So where we're at here in Mark, you know, Jesus just came out of the waters of baptism. Father cracks open the heavens, says, this is my beloved son whom I love and him I'm well pleased. And then this is what's wild. Immediately following that, verse 12 of chapter 1 of Mark, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So that's Mark's account. Uh, thank goodness we got Matthew. He's got a little more details as far as that goes. So um, flip over to Matthew chapter 4 now. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read this to you. As soon as I get done reading it, I'm going to, you know, we, we got a lot of guys in the room today, but uh, one of the things I want to do is to be able to um, let this be a journey that we go through the gear. I'm going to just kind of even ask out loud, you can share in the midst of everybody, immediately, what are some of the first things that stand out to you as you see this story around what does it mean to be a man of God? What does it mean to be um, a true man of God? So Jesus' temptation, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that's Satan, he came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to a holy city the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Satan's using his scripture too, he will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall, shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right. So. First blush reaction, you hear that story, you see just temptation, um, you know, and again, combining that with the fact that he shows up there on the shores of the Jordan River, John the Baptist baptizes him, whole sky rips open before Jesus has done anything necessarily. Jesus, uh, the father speaks the son's identity over him, says, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. And then immediately from like that big round of applause moment, not Jesus gets an idea, not Jesus kind of feels like he should, 
the spirit, the spirit that just ascended onto Christ in this, you know, kind of dove looking like thing, this spirit now says, all right, let's go out to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and fast out here in the desert, you know, and be tempted by Satan. So when you hear that, right, first blush, what stands out to you? Immediately. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Me, me and Chuck were having a conversation as I was walking with an, another guy. It's like, um, just got baptized. And like sometimes, you know, I, Chuck was talking about like the week after I got baptized was one of the hardest weeks I had. Like that was, I thought it was going to be easier and it was worse. <laughs> uh, what else stands out to you right off the bat? He was yeah, he was hungry. Yeah. He's got a flesh. He's a real. He 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 is the living uh, bread, but he still had to eat, and he still chose not to. Yeah. What else? My thoughts were just just uh, denying the flesh, which men cannot do in those cases. Just denying the flesh at every level. Mm-hmm. Being obedient to the will of the Father. Yeah. And when he just pay attention that he's by himself. Yeah, he's by himself. That's good. The devil never left him evidently. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Yeah. All good stuff. All good stuff. So, um, few things we'll get into here because what we're seeing on display here is spiritual warfare. So I want to give you three things like right off the bat as far as spiritual warfare goes. Um, first thing we got to know is one, uh, we live in a spiritual world. So it's not just you know, the things you can see, feel, taste, and smell. Uh, there is an actual spiritual war. Uh, what that means is right now at this given moment, like if Jesus could like hit the clapper and we could see all the supernatural spiritual forces of good that were in this room, we'd all faint at like the majesty and the glory that we saw. At the same time, if like Jesus could hit the clapper again and we see all the evil forces that are existing in this room right now, we would all be terrified and pass out like most people do when they're able to see past the temporal past the actual realm and they're able to see things that are supernatural every time that happens in scripture people are like we're about, i'm about to die this is bad and so what we need to understand is is that's happening right now bible tells that over and over again second thing is it is a spiritual world where things are going on that are past the physical but secondly uh, there's a spiritual war there are these forces of good and evil and you know this you felt the pull of this there's a spiritual force of good, that's God. There's a spiritual force of evil, that's Satan. All his demons, all the legions of his, you know, demonic forces. There's spiritual war that goes on in a spiritual world. And then the third thing is you have an involvement in this, and your involvement in this spiritual war is personal. There is a all-out spiritual war not just going on kind of around you as you speak, like in these, you know, I think sometimes we can get that it's like, oh, that's the, the forces of the world economies and all these other kind of crazy things. And that's where all this stuff is going on. But there's a spiritual war happening in your chair. This spiritual war is personal. I was reading a book on temptation by a guy named Russell Moore. Um, and there's a chapter in there that uh, the title of the chapter is, you're on the verge of wrecking your life especially if you don't know it. 
And I thought that was key because I think that's the way we kind of work through life. It's like you don't realize that you're really on the verge of absolutely wrecking your life and you are totally on the verge of wrecking your life if you don't realize it. You just kind of are drifting through. And some of you, you've had those moments in life where there's those, you know, 20-something years where you didn't realize, like you just thought you were going, meeting ends meet, you know, running and gunning, and then, oh, man, I have wrecked my life, and you didn't even know it. And he used this illustration about cows uh, and how they used to kill cows and how they kill cows now. He said, for, for a long time, workers, our cattle workers, would forcefully push and prod cattle into the cattle house, which was a place where they would be slaughtered. And for good reasons, the cows would resist, and the operation was extremely difficult to carry out until one particular scientist came along, and he said, no, 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 the way to slaughter cows is to make them feel like everything is great as they enter the slaughterhouse. Keep the scenery the same as it is outside. And the scientists began to experiment not with prodding cows off the trucks, but by leading them quietly and onto a ramp where they would walk through a squeeze chute where a device applies this gentle pressure designed to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch. Then the cattle continued down the ramp with no sudden turns, a path that is designed to convince the cattle that they are going home. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves begin to no longer touch the ground and the conveyor belt slowly and gradually lifts them off the ground. And then, in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes and they transition from livestock to meat and they were never aware enough to even be alarmed by any of it. And that is exactly what Satan wants for you. He doesn't want you to know there's a war going on. He doesn't want you to know you're on a conveyor belt. He wants you just to kind of journey through and then boom, one day it's over. You don't realize that those things happen. So we've got to feel this because you have to understand, you have to know, and today we're going to really only get into this first temptation. I want to kind of give you the, the, the grounds for this and then see what Jesus is doing here and then understand and know like we're probably going to get to one and then next week we may tackle the second two. Um, Satan has a plan for you and your family. And if you don't have a plan for what you're going to do in light of that, then that's a, that's a huge red flag. And so there are deliberate, um, deliberate attacks on our lives. And the thing that we need to know, and I think somebody, uh, Royce, you, you hinted, uh, hinted at this a second ago. Every person, especially every man, has fallen. We have all made the mistakes. We've all broken promises. We have all let people down. Every man has fallen except for one. We are all seeds of Adam, but Jesus comes on the scene. is totally different. And I want you to see some parallels in this story. Um, there's a big parallel here between what we see happening in Jesus right here and what you see happening in the garden. When the snake slithers up, what is Adam, most, what, what is Adam first tempted to do? To eat something, right? Jesus is the same thing. In the, in the garden, Adam is tempted to eat fruit. Obviously, he's in a garden, um, so fruits are there. Uh, Jesus is not in a garden. He's in a desert, so there's rocks out there. And so, so we'll turn some of these rocks into bread. There's these, perf there's these parallels in there. And it's the same thing. When Satan slithers up to Adam, he is questioning God's commands. He said, did God really say this? When Satan shows up to Jesus there in the, in the wilderness, 
He's questioning God again. If you really are God's son, then turn these stones into bread. And what's fascinating here, and again, tie this back into, you know, maybe, maybe last week you left out of here going, why in the world did, did God have to really let Jesus know right at the beginning that, that this is my son, this is my son, this is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. He goes out into the desert. And what's the first thing that Satan attacks? He attacks his identity. He attacks, his, more specifically, he attacks his sonship. If you're, like, if you're really God's son, then turn these stones into bread. That's exactly what he's after. And so what we see here in this parallel is, and this is what I need all of us to understand as men of God, and regarding Jesus in this story, it shows us this. Every temptation that you're going to face in life is a temptation from Satan to try to get you to see God as your rival, not as your father. Every temptation is not just a temptation to cause you to sin. Every temptation that you face in this life is a temptation for you to deny your sonship if you're in the father. It's to get, it's, it's a temptation by Satan for you to, and this is what's, it's almost blood curling to think about, to let Satan be your father. To say, Satan, you in partnership with my flesh will be what provides for me what I need. You in partnership with my flesh will be the one who gives me the gratification for my desires. To say, I'm going to circumvent this loving, kind, caring, heavenly father who sent his son to die for me. And in turn, I'm going to let you be my daddy. I'm going to let you be my father. And the point to all this is when we come to this place where we see what's going on here in this story, we understand that that is exactly what he likes to do to us. In this story, what we see is, you know, there's all sorts of temptations happening. I don't know, like, you, you can read this story as a guy and go like, man, I really haven't been tempted, like, when I'm walking down the gravel driveway to be like, you know what, I really wish I could turn some of these into, you know, Triscuits or goldfish. Like, we don't get that. And then, you know, none of us are really tempted to go up and try to jump off buildings and, and land nicely. Um, and then we know we're not going to be able to rule the world. And so you can come to these temptations and go, well, that's not really me. I'm not really facing these. I have like modern temptations. Well, the point I want you to understand is that there are no new temptations. There are new manifestations of the same old temptation, but there's no such thing as new temptation. And every temptation we see is a temptation for us to see God as our rival and not to see him as a father. So maybe you come to this and you got a couple of questions. I think one of the biggest questions when you, you come to these things, you see Jesus out there getting tempted is the question, does God tempt us? Does God tempt us? The Bible is over and over again, very clear on this point that no, God does not tempt us, but God allows us to be tempted. The whole story of Job, it tells us that, that God will allow Satan to tempt us. He'll allow Satan to do stuff. And it, the story of Job also tells us that, that God will put Satan on a lease, that there's no temptation that will ever come your way that God hasn't sovereignly overseen. Now, this is where God works. God will see us being tempted by Satan. And what he does, and I love this about him, he will use even the temptation of Satan. In, and this is what's wild. Even the temptations you fall to, at a time to be used by him to be the testing that he puts you through so that eventually you can come to the place where you actually glorify him. And so the first temptation that we come to here, uh, the way I would label this first temptation when he shows up to him, he says, hey, um, if you're the son of God, command these stones 
uh, these, these stones to become loaves of bread, that first temptation, the way I would label that is a temptation to self-gratification. Self-gratification. What we mean by self-gratification is, is I have these needs. Uh, Ma- Matthew has like the understatement verse of the year when he's like, Jesus was out there for 40 days. And he was hungry. It's like, yes. Like, I already had breakfast and I'm hungry again right now. Like, Jesus is out there 40 days. You know, he's probably not eating a whole lot already. He's traveling, he's on the road, and he's out there and he's 40 days and he's starving. And Satan shows up and he says, Hey, if you really were the Son of God, first of all, what are you doing here? Like, you're God's Son. And, you know, to, to Craig, your point, you're out here in the middle of the wilderness. And, like, that's where we've been, right? You go, I'm, well, I, if I'm supposedly God's son, well, you take the whole message from last week, like, oh, I'm really God's son. And if I'm in Christ, he sees me as a son. That's amazing. But then at the same time, you go, well, then why the heck am I in the wilderness? Like, what, why am I out here? And it's, it's, it's lonely. It's depressing. Um, my needs aren't being met. Like, if I, if I really am God's son, why am I out here? So I think, first of all, Satan comes to him and goes, hey, if you're really God's son, like, there's a whole lot of things that don't add up with you being God's son. One, you're out here in the wilderness by yourself. Two, um, you're starving. This Again, this is making no sense. Why are you out here doing this? And so why don't you, if you really are God's son, just turn these stones into bread and eat? And if you're the beloved son, you don't belong here. See, what we see in this story is that Satan is trying to tempt Jesus at the place of his desires. And this is what he does to us. See, Satan knows that God made you as a man with different desires. Desires for food. This is where Satan comes out here. Desires for sex. Desires for sleep. Desires for money, power, approval. He created us with those desires. Now, God hardwired those things in. A lot of times in our world, we go, okay, well, my, like my sex drive is a bad thing and my appetite is a bad thing. Well, at the end of the day, guys, God created you with those appetites. The appetites aren't evil. When we let the appetites drive our life, that's when evil things come in. The problem isn't that you have a sex drive. The problem is when you let sex drive everything that you do, all the things that you think about, the money you make, the jobs you take, the trucks you buy, all the other things. Those are when the problems come into play is when we let those desires be what drive us, when we let those appetites be what move us along. And the temptation here is to fulfill our wants apart from God's word and apart from God's will. And see, that's the, that's the big struggle in all this is we come to this place where we have these things that we know, like our flesh and our body and our minds, we just want. And so what Satan does is he comes in and he says, okay, you have this desire for food. Well, I'm going to tempt you to overeat. He says, okay, well, I know you have this desire to sleep. He says, well, I'm going to tempt you to, to sleep in and hit snooze and become lazy and apathetic. Well, I know you have this desire for sex. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put it all around you, all this stuff that you can't have. And then I'm going to, uh, for the sake of helping you feel some shame, I'm going to put you in a marriage. And then I'm going to let some arguments happen. And I'm going to let some, you know, once a, once a month, you know, something happen to where you can't get that, you know, and that can't happen. And then I'm going to inundate your whole entire life and existence with all this other stuff. And you're going to have this drive and you're going to have these urges and you're going to have these feelings inside because that's kind of how I hardwired you. And so Satan says, well, I want to, you know, I want to I want to attack you at that point because Satan knows how you're wired. He knows how you're created. 
So that's where he sends that temptation, right at that place, because he knows that God created us with appetites, with desires, but God created us so that we would look to him as a father who would provide for him. The problem is he doesn't do it in the time that we would want. And so Satan has always been after the shortcut. Take the shortcut. All right, we're supposed to wait till we're married to, to have sex. Take the shortcut, man. We're supposed to, you know, wait till this, we, we reach this level to get this promotion. Well, is there, is there a shortcut? Is there a way I can circumvent this system to be able to get this? Can I tell a few lies, shake a few hands, make a few empty promises so I can climb this ladder faster? He wants us to take the shortcut. And what's crazy here is what Satan is doing, and this is what maybe you don't realize behind your sins, when he slithered up to Adam and Eve in the garden, what he was convincing them was not that this fruit tasted really good and you should totally eat it. If you go back to the story, you see that what he's convincing them is God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He says, no, no, no. If you'll eat this, the reason that God told you not to is that he knows that if you eat this, you're going to be like him. You're, God's holding out on you. And I think that's where we're at a lot of times our temptation is, is we have, and I think if we're honest, we have these moments when we feel the sin, when we feel the temptation, whether it's to sleep in, to eat in, to sex out, to whatever it is. When it's all of those things, we have this thing of going, okay, God, I have these desires. I want this thing in my life. You're holding out on me. Why did you make me have this desire if I can't have it right now? And we'll get in that eventually when we talk about self-discipline and we talk about denying the flesh. But the key here is not necessarily this like, I'm going to kill my flesh. I'm even going to practice this self-discipline because even in that, you just become someone who worships your own will. The reason that God gives us these desires and then doesn't satisfy them at the very moment that you feel like you have a need. Like that's we can all agree that God doesn't do that. That the moment you feel even the slightly hint horny, God just doesn't go like, boom, here's your wife. I teleported her to you. The moment you were 14, you know, you start, you know, you hit puberty, wake up the next day. God's like, here she is. He doesn't do that. Like he only did that with one man. And it, he, Adam ruined it for all of us. And, and God's like, I'm not doing that ever again. I'm not saying that God, I'm not, don't hear me say God made a mistake. That's not what I'm saying. He doesn't do that with food. He doesn't do that with money. He doesn't do that with any of those things. And the reason he doesn't do that with those things is not so that we just kind of like, I, I don't even think it's primarily so that we learn patience. I don't think it's primarily that we learn discipline. The reason that God, at the point of your need, doesn't just Im immediately, magically, supernaturally just and give you that thing that you feel a fleshly craving for is because he's trying to develop trust. He's trying to get you to the place where you trust him to supply and meet those needs. Because it's trust is that baseline is the most important thing in you guys' relationship. And even, again, the, there's this hypostatic union, we talked about this a little bit before, that is Jesus being both fully man and fully God at the same time. And I have to imagine that the fully man side of Jesus who's out here in the desert starving and the fully God side of him 
that's saying, I totally could turn those into bread. I could turn them into steak. I could turn that into um, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets because I know the future and I know what those are going to be like. And I could have a, I could have a Chick-fil-A number one right now. Like the sovereign, fully God part of Jesus could have a Chick-fil-A number one with lemonade in the desert right there, but says, no, we're not going to do that. And the fully man side of him is going, I'm really, 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 really hungry. And I believe part of the reason that happens is so that both aspects, the fully God and the fully man side, I think even more specifically, the fully man side of Jesus can get to this place where it has unprecedented trust in the will of the Father. The same Father who sent the Spirit to lead him out in here is trying to get him to enter into this exercise of trust that I'm going to say no to the pull of my flesh. I'm going to say no to what my desires are so that I can develop trust that eventually, in due time, the Father is going to provide, the Father is going to meet my needs. What we see over and over again is that God creates us with these desires and Satan wants us to take a shortcut to get them and he has um, not really changed his plans He's not really changed the way he does this. And what he wants to do is just convince you that, hey, that's the way you are. You're just, you're just a guy who has these desires. You're just a guy who has these. But we fight the same way that Jesus fights. We fight by trusting the Father. So what I want you to understand, last thing before we kind of break for um, times of questions, is that as we fight, the way we fight is by trusting that our God will supply. But we also fight by looking backwards, looking backwards at the stories that we see in Scripture and looking backwards at our own story and realizing that every attempt to satisfy, to gratify our lives, to gratify those desires, every attempt to satisfy where we try to satisfy those wants apart from the Word of God and apart from the will of God, they lead us not to delight in God, but they actually lead us to despair. They lead us to broken places. And you know this from your own story. The times when you tried to circumvent God, you tried to get it your way. And you felt how broken that became. And we see those stories. We see no sooner did Adam and Eve's teeth break the rind, break the peel of the apple or pomegranate, whatever fruit they were eating. No sooner did their teeth break that fruit then they felt immense guilt. They thought it was going to bring them everything they ever wanted, satisfy every need. But it created more pain for them, for every generation following that we could ever imagine. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> Esau is the uh, Duck Dynasty uh, older brother in the family. And then you got Jacob, and he's the, uh, I don't know, America's next top model brother, I, don't, I guess. Uh, he's, really, he, he's really into cooking, and uh, he's the HGTV brother. Um, he's really into cooking and uh, stuff like that, and he's uh, not out there in the woods, outdoorsman type. Um, but he's really sharp. He's smart. And so Esau comes in from hunting one day, and he's like, man, I'm starving. And you know what You know, HGTV Jacob has got going on the stove is this nice bowl of stew. And um, Esau is being super dramatic, and he comes in. He's like, I'm about to die if I don't have anything to eat, which that's how our flesh works. 
It convinces you, man, if you don't have this, you're going to die. Like this is, I'm about to die if I don't fill in your blank. And Jacob goes, all right, how about this? I'll give you this stew. You trade me your birthright. And no sooner does he take the first of the soup and he realizes, oh, crap, what did I just get rid of? What did I just trade? You got Judas. Judas, this is desire for money. This desire for Jesus to come and I believe this, I believe Jesus' Jesus's desire was for more than just money. Jesus was the tre- or Judas was the treasurer. Judas was kind of in charge of that aspect of the ministry. But I think Judas also was, had given up hope that he was going to be one of the, the apostles who's going to be able to see this Jesus be the king like he wanted him to be. And because he realized that this Jesus wasn't going to come up and set up a new kingdom like David, this Judas guy, I think he wanted attention, he wanted approval, he wanted to be one of the leading guys in charge. It wasn't just a money thing. I think it was also a power thing. And a lot of times that's what we use to gain power, to gain approval, to gain comfort, is we use the making of money. This is us guys. We use making money to get those things. If I have enough money, I'll have the comfort I want. If I have enough money, I'll have the power I want. If I have enough money, then I'll have the approval from all the strangers who see me driving my really cool truck. I think that's some of where Judas was at. And once he realized Jesus wasn't his, Jesus wasn't going to come to power in a way that led to Judas having power the way he wanted to, when Jesus shows up, he says, like, hey, I'm going to be crucified. And Judas is like, well, that's not going to lead to you being king. So here's what I'll do. I'll go and betray you for 30 pieces of silver. And no sooner does he do that, he realizes what he's done. And he takes the same money that he had the desire for. And he buys a field that he eventually hangs himself in. See, when we go outside of how God's word and how God's will tells us that our needs will be met, it always leads to despair. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes you get in and you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. You know, I can have my cake and eat it too. And then you get food poisoning. And it all blows up in your face. And I hope that we can see what Jesus does through his temptation here and how he combats this and the way he uses. I don't think it's any strange coincidence when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He says, I'm not going to just live by what my, I'm not going to just live by these things that outside resources can provide for my flesh, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy. He's quoting there from the time when the Israelites, you know where the Israelites were at when this quote happened? In the desert. So when they had, this is crazy. Um, So the Israelites, to get freed from Egypt, what do they pass through? Red Sea, which is what element? Water, thank you. (laughs) They pass through water, all right? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the the Red Sea deliverance from uh, the Egyptians being on the same level of baptism. He he calls that Israel's baptism, going through the Red Sea. Israel goes through the Red Sea, goes through the water, and is immediately led where? Into the desert. How long did they hang out in the desert? Forty years. How long does Jesus hang out here in the desert? 
What did he just get through coming through? What did he just come out of before he went into the wilderness? Water. And it's all this symbolic showing of Jesus is the son. When, and I think it's Deuteronomy 4, when Moses actually goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, just let my people go. He says, let my son go. And all the things that were happening in the Old Testament is all pointing to this time where Jesus will be the true and greater Israel, the true and greater son, and show us what in the world it looks like to be sons who resist and fight the temptation. And it's only by and it's only through him. So um, you guys got some, some time for questions now. I'm going to pray over you guys. Um, we'll uh, break these down, talk through these. Don't die. Um, and go from there. All right. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Jesus, that, that we can see what it looks like to, to resist and fight against our flesh here. Um, Jesus, forgive us for being men who try to satisfy ourselves apart from you, who try to bring pleasure to our lives apart from the paths that you have said this is how pleasure really comes. And so, Jesus, help us to, to be able to know that from the very beginning of time, you've been trying to help us trust you. You've been trying to help us feed not on things of our flesh, but to feed on your word so that that can happen. We love you, Jesus. Be with us during this time. In your name, amen.